Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, we're glad you're here. Uh, this is Matt Allred, UDOT's Internal Communication Manager. I am joined once again by my most excellent co-host, Lisa Miller. Hi, Lisa. Hello, Matt. Episode five. Wow. Can you believe it? Episode five. Today, we're actually, it, it seems like we've been doing the EIS a lot, right? These first four episodes. We're actually going to wrap that up just a little bit today. So that's good. We're going to finish up the EIS. Uh, Josh Vangura is back. We've talked to Josh. Vince Izzo, uh, the two old hats that we've been talking to a lot about this EIS. But Lisa, we've got two new people today. And we haven't had either of them on the podcast yet. We've got Carissa Watanabe and Bree Bizenboos. Uh, and there we'll, we'll go through and have them introduce themselves in a second. But today, Lisa, is kind of a cleanup episode for us. We're going to talk about some of the topics that we uh, get questions about, but didn't really fit into the conversation that we've had on the first four episodes. So uh, we're going to call this the uh, kitchen sink episode, if that works. I love that terminology, the kitchen sink of episodes. Uh, Carissa, welcome. We're very happy to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. Now we've met other members of the EIS team, but we haven't met you yet. So tell us a little bit, a little bit about yourself. Well, I work in the Division of Environmental Services at UDOT, and I am here providing environmental support on this project. Um, so I moved here from the Pacific Northwest, and one of the things I love about Utah is the recreation opportunities and how easily accessible the outdoors are. I love hiking in the canyons. Um, I'm a resident of Cottonwood Heights. I live close to Little Cottonwood. I commute on Wasatch Boulevard, experience the backups from the avalanche closures. So I'm kind of pretty familiar with why this project's needed. Well, and, and Carissa, you do. I will attest to the fact that you do like hiking. Uh, this is funny. Last summer, Carissa and I ran into each other in the middle of Wyoming pretty close to the Continental Divide. We were up in the Wind Rivers and just of all the places to run into a coworker, uh, we were 15 miles from the nearest road and I ran into Carissa. So she does love her mountains. She does love to hike. So glad you're here, Carissa. Um, all right, Bree, you're up next. You're new to this podcast series, kind of. Well, you haven't been in front of the mic yet. Uh, you've been on all these episodes with us making sure we're saying the right stuff. But Tell us what your role on the team is and uh, what do you want listeners to know about you? Well, thanks for having me, Matt. You're right. Now I'm actually speaking instead of just kind of, you know, creeping. Um, so I am part of the communications and public involvement component on the project team. So if any of our listeners happen to check us out on email or social, that's me sending those out. So um I'm a transplant too. I moved to Utah uh, back in 2006 from Wisconsin. Go pack. Um, originally just to work for the Forest Service for a season out in the Uinta Basin, and I just never left. So this is where I met my husband. We both used to ski patrol up in Park City, and I got to hang out with the avalanche dogs up there. Um, and now we just live down in the valley with our, our two fur critters. Um, you know, previously I used to work for the state, though not for UDOT. Um, but in the wildland fire management program for the Wasatch Front area. So I definitely understand a lot of the challenges that are associated with land management in these really special, like complicated areas. Well, Bree, we are glad to have you. And, and we've got a pretty round team here, a pretty robust team of experts on the canyons and, and what's going on up there. So 
we're just going to jump right into it. And I'm going to throw this one to Carissa. Um, why isn't uh, what, UDOT has been chosen to do this EIS? Why hasn't another agency been given the task of leading this? So back in 2005, uh, a program called NEPA assignment was created under Safety Lou. And I know you guys like to spell your acronym. So it's the Safe, Accountable, Flexible, Efficient Transportation Equity Act, a legacy for users. Uh, you can see why it's abbreviated. But basically, that allows the Secretary of Transportation to assign its federal responsibilities under NEPA to a state DOT. So in our case, Federal Highways Administration de delegated its responsibilities to UDOT, and UDOT began participating in this program back in 2008, kind of with authority for smaller projects like repaving or guardrail installations, and later we assumed full delegation for larger projects like EAs and EISs in 2017. So on this project, UDOT's considered lead federal agency. But, um, you know, we are the Department of Transportation, but not the Department of Roads. So we build sidewalks and bike lanes and multi-use paths. And we also run the Lake Powell Ferry and provide safety oversight for all the ski lifts in the state, as well as amusement park rides, which I'm sure not a lot of people know. Um, so with all that being said, we don't have a ton of experience with buses or trains, and that's why we've been working so closely with UTA. And let's be honest, you know, nobody in the U.S. Is outside of the ski resorts really have experience with gondolas. So that's why we've hired an independent gondola design firm. But we as UDI, you know, we do understand how to build safe and efficient transportation systems. And that's what we're trying to do here. Sweet. And I, I appreciate the clarification. I, I think it's helpful for us to understand why UDOT's leading this uh, and not another agency. And and we really do know how to build great transportation systems. So this is good. Josh, I'm going to jump over to you for a second. Uh, something that we know that's on people's mind is the idea of how many people the, the canyon can actually accommodate. Uh, and we've heard this, this phrase, I've heard it a lot, is that we're loving our canyons to death. Right? We know some listeners are wondering why the EIS doesn't limit the amount of people that actually go up to the canyons, uh, up to the resorts to reduce the congestion. So why doesn't UDOT limit ticket sales at the resorts just to reduce the traffic? It seems like that would be an easier solution, right? So the simple answer to that, Matt, is UDOT doesn't actually have the ability to limit how private businesses operate. But the number of skiers that the resort can accommodate is managed by the Forest Service through the special use permit that the resorts have. So any expansion of the resort infrastructure, whether that be lodges or lifts or boundaries, would require additional environmental review between the resort and the Forest Service to look at those impacts. So again, any expansion would be analyzed in a very similar manner. But a more macro view of this question is that UDOT also doesn't have the ability to limit the number of people that can enter the canyon either, which is also under the Forest Service's purview. Interesting. So Vince, let's move on to you. Will improvements to the bus service or from the gondola or train cause an increase in the number of skiers in the canyon, or maybe even an increase in the potential for resort expansion or other kinds of development? Well, the purpose of the project is not to increase the number of people um, in Little Cottonwood Canyon. You know, we're looking at 2050 and, you know, population is going to grow. So, there's going to be more people using that canyon. Our intent is to 
reduce the number of personal vehicles that enter the canyon and get those people onto transit. This would be accomplished by providing a toll and a better transit system. The transit system was to, uh, designed to accommodate a shift of about 30% of the users in personal vehicles into transit, take into account what we expect that 2050 uh, number of users to be. The transportation alternatives that UDOT developed was based on how we expect that traffic to grow based on population. And we compared that to today. So overall, the alternatives were designed to meet the expected 2050 demand in the canyon, which will show an increase over what people see today. The EIS will evaluate how that additional 2050 demand for use could change the user experience at the ski resorts and in the backcountry as well. And, and as Josh mentions, any expansion of ski resorts would be under the National Forest System um, authorization. So if they wanted to expand, that would be a separate process that would be based on their use permits with the Forest Service. So Josh, if UDOT can't limit the number of visitors heading to the resorts, why isn't a visitor capacity analysis part of the environmental impact statement, maybe as a way to manage the amount of people in the canyon? So as I started to answer in my previous answer, and I, I thought I was getting too wordy, so <laughs> thanks for the follow-up question. I think we all agree that there is an upper threshold of visitors that the canyon can sustainably accommodate, right? We all agree to that. <clears throat> I actually heard Mayor Mendenhall say last week that Salt Lake City is growing by 17% right now annually. And my gut feeling, just based on the people that have moved into my neighborhood, is that many of these people are moving here because of the amazing access to the outdoors that the Wasatch Front offers. I know that's why I moved here 25 years ago. And sounds like Bree too. So we can all expect that more and more people are going to be recreating in the canyon. So in the EIS, recreation use and the associated impacts to the environment will be analyzed. And the Forest Service is going to advise UDOT regarding to the expected impacts from these transportation improvements and these associated recreation impacts. So I think it's important to know that right now the Forest Service is not considering a visitor capacity analysis. And that's really because the current forest plan has monitoring as a big part of the management protocols in place. And based on these metrics, the Forest Service has determined that the canyon can handle increased use without significant resource impacts. Okay, Carissa, question for you then. What sort of visitor impacts are being evaluated within the EIS? So UDOT's looking at the indirect impacts that the proposed alternatives will have on recreation in the canyon. So this analysis will include the potential for increased visitation caused by the alternatives. So this increase in visitors would primarily be at the ski resorts and the surrounding areas in both the winter and summer. So in the winter, it's assuming an increased number of visitors based on increasing transit service to meet the future demand in 2050. So the large majority of those visitors will be going to the ski resorts. And as Josh and Vince mentioned, they're regulated under a special use permit through the Forest Service. There are also some visitors that may be going backcountry skiing. So it's looking at the additional use, that additional use, and what those impacts may be. 
in the summer, the gondola or train may potentially operate as a tourist attraction. So it's looking at how many additional users would be making the trip to the resorts only because of this amenity, since the ticket prices wouldn't be subsidized in the summer. And then what are the potential impacts resources from these users? Uh, for the trailhead improvement alternatives, all of them would decrease the availability of parking in the canyon, so therefore there wouldn't be any increase in summer visitation. So overall, it's looking at how UDOT's changing user access and its potential impacts on resources such as wildlife, erosion, recreation, things like that. So Carissa, what, what are the environmental impacts of each of these alternatives and, and why weren't they included in the information that's currently out there? So at this phase of the analysis, the preliminary environmental impacts were analyzed in order to determine the reasonable alternatives that will be carried forward. And these can be found in the alternative screening report on the website. Um, so during the next phase of the process, the draft EIS will be assessing the environmental impacts of each alternative in a greater level of detail in order to, to determine a preferred alternative. Some examples of the types of impacts that will be assessed um, in the draft EIS include you know, noise, air and, air and water quality, wildlife, property impacts, impacts to minority and low-income populations. Uh, the impacts of construction will also be analyzed in the draft EIS. So these are the types of impacts that would only occur while construction is taking place. For example, you know, noise from a paving machine. Uh, this section also outlines when best management practices or BMPs uh, will be implement, implemented during construction to minimize any potential impacts to resources like air or water quality. Yeah, and that air and water quality are certainly very important, but Carissa, what about the old CB analysis? What about the cost benefit? Will, will there be a cost benefit analysis performed as part of the draft EIS? So no, a cost benefit analysis is not required um, as part of the NEPA analysis. And UDOT does not historically look at this factor when completing an EIS. Thanks, Chris. I'm going to jump back to Josh for a second. Josh, you know, he helped us understand visitor capacity and impacts a little bit better. Uh, let's get into the sub-alternatives that are included with the bus, the gondola, and the cog rail options. Why do all of the alternatives need snowsheds? We may have touched on this just a little bit in one of our past episodes, but explain why we need the snowsheds, and are they really only needed for just a few days in the year? So that's a great question, Matt. And again, it's something we hear pretty often, too. And you have to remember that all of these five alternatives are really only designed to reduce vehicular traffic by 30%. So that means 70% of these private vehicles are still going to be using the roadway and subject to the hazards associated with avalanches in the canyon. And you have to remember, our purpose and need are to improve the safety, reliability, and mobility. And snowsheds really play into that safety and reliability goal. So the engineering shows that snowsheds aren't just going to significantly reduce the road closures, but reduce it from approximately 56 hours a year down to 11 hours a year. And these road closures cause huge backups in the residential neighborhoods along both SR210 and SR209. So, that, I mean, that's an estimated 80% reduction in road closures associated with installing these sheds. And of course, those backups make it difficult for residents to leave or return home. Um, but it also increases emergency response times to those residents. 
The other part of this, snow sheds will also reduce the amount of active control work used by UDOT for the avalanche mitigation. And they're just gonna provide increased safety for those remaining motorists that are on the road during periods of high avalanche danger. So Josh, I wanna just jump back really quick because we, we in transportation, we like to use road numbers instead of what some people may understand. So you said that it increases congestion on SR210 and SR209. Will you just tell us what those two roads are? Oh, I'm sorry. So SR210, that, that's our study area, right? So SR210 runs from the mouth of Big Cottonwood or the 7-Eleven up through the bypass road, you know, along Wasatch, transitions to North Little Cottonwood Road, and then heads up the canyon. But SR209 is probably more commonly called 94th South, and that's the other road that merges in at the mouth. I knew that. I just wanted to make sure everybody else understood where it was coming from. Um, one thing I've, I was thinking about, Josh, is why hasn't UDOT proposed putting a parking deck um, and really a, a large mobility hub right there at the at the existing park and ride lot at the mouth of the canyon? And we actually looked at this, Matt. Um, but a parking structure at the mouth is going to push all of that traffic to this already congested point. Like we said... SR210 and SR209 converge at this point. And that's really why we did that merge lane project last year was to help alleviate this congestion. But if we can get that 30% of the traffic off the road before this pinch point, it's very much going to help the congestion in those neighborhoods and help people to be able to access the garage much easier. So again, that's why a mobility hub right there at the mouth just doesn't work. Well, what about uh, congestion other in other areas, Josh? So I guess, is congestion going to be a problem for the residents in the area of the mobility hubs, you know, at the gravel pit or along North Little Cottonwood Road when people are, are trying to park? So UDOT has designed both the mobility hubs themselves to accommodate the number of vehicles, but we've also taken a really hard look at both the ingress and egress from these mobility hubs to make sure that the increase in traffic doesn't result in congestion. I think it's important to remember that the alternatives are designed to address the 30th busiest hour in 2050. And this 30th busiest hour concept is standard practice in transportation planning. And again, I just wanted to bring it up. And the bottom line is it's just not physically responsible to design for a worst case scenario. And that's why we choose the 30th busiest hour. So on some of those busiest ski days, some congestion could still be anticipated along these routes. But for a majority of the year, there should not be any congestion. So, Josh, you, you mentioned a little bit ago, SR210 starts kind of there at the 7-Eleven and, and is part of that Wasatch Boulevard area. And I know that the EAS is, it really is for these canyons about serving more than just the little cottonwood area, um, kind of everything else around, including Wasatch Boulevard. So let's jump into some Wasatch Boulevard questions because I know there are a lot of them. Um, did UDOT consider expanding Highland Drive instead of expanding Wasatch Boulevard and just, you know, taking it to the west there? We did actually, Matt. <clears throat> so when we were figuring out um, and modeling the expected traffic volumes in the project area in that 2050 design year. We used the Wasatch Front Regional Council, or WFRCs as everybody generally calls it, travel demand model. 
And that does include improvements to Highland Drive. And WFRC's regional, uh, regional transportation plan shows Highland being built as a five-lane road and connecting from 98 South to the Draper city limits. But even with Highland Drive being expanded to five lanes, the travel model still showed a need to expand the capacity on Wasatch to meet this future regional growth. So UDOT's responsible for roads throughout the state. I think we all know that. And we have a long range planning process that we follow carefully to make sure that all growing communities are served by this process and by the road network. So Josh, I'm sticking with you still. Um, did UDOT consider increasing transit instead of just adding more roadway capacity for Wasatch Boulevard? So UDOT did consider a transit option on Wasatch and its base assumptions when doing the traffic modeling. So included in the WFRC regional transportation plan beyond widening Highland Drive, the RTP also talks about express bus service on Wasatch running from the Little Cottonwood Park and Ride to the intersection, you know, from the intersection of 209, 210, all the way down to I-215 at 39 South. And this is where the express route would connect to another bus route heading north, probably up to the U of U. So again, this was considered as part of our base traffic modeling. Other things that were considered, we also looked at a UTA, UTA light rail transit from Draper to downtown Salt Lake as part of this modeling. But even with these transit projects that serve Cottonwood Heights and the Draper residents, the traffic modeling still shows congested traffic conditions on Wasatch if these roadway capacity improvements weren't made. Vince, are you still with us? I am. Sorry, we, we've been picking on Josh and Carissa a little bit here. I wanted to jump over to you because I, I think this may be right up your alley. So what is the growth projection data that was used to model this 2015 traffic on Wasatch Boulevard? Because it does seem like the majority of the growth in the Salt Lake Valley and in the county is actually back in that southwest quadrant. So the population data used for the analysis was developed by the Chem Gardner Policy Institute at the University of Utah. And this data for population projections is used by most of the local and state governments statewide for planning, including the planning for future roads. So this data supports the development of the Wasatch Front Regional Council Transportation Plan, which is the kind of county-wide plan for what happens in the future for roads. And this plan was updated in 2019 using these 2050 planning projections. The data is the best available for UDOT to use, and it's the best available data to base our 2050 travel demand modeling for Wasatch Boulevard. And based on these projections, it does show a need for improving roadway capacity. We've been talking a lot about capacity and adding lanes, but Josh, why didn't the alternatives evaluate or reduce speed limits on Wasatch Boulevard? So the evaluation of speed limits is done outside of the EIS process. And there's actually both state law and administrative rules that dictate how speed limits are set. So to sum it up really quickly, speed limits are set on state roads after UDOT conducts a speed study. 
And this speed spot in the speed study, we generally look find what the 85th percentile speed is. And that's what the posted speed limit becomes, is that 85th percentile speed. But of course, we give consideration of things like accident data, shoulder width, sight distance, and surrounding development among just a few of those considerations. So while we're not looking at reducing the speed limits on Wasatch, I think it's important to know that in the final design of Wasatch, we will take into consideration the goals set forth in Cottonwood Heights Wasatch Boulevard Master Plan. And this does include speed calming measures, you know, things like planted medians, curb and gutter, vegetative park strips. And this will give the road more of a residential feel. And that should help with uh, lowering the speeds in this area, because, again, it's, it gives the roadway a sense of feel. Interesting. We, OK, we, talk, we talked speed. Let's go back to capacity and, and lanes. Now, Vince isn't allowing room for shoulder running buses on Wasatch Boulevard essentially making the five lane alternative into a seven lane alternative? Well, first UDOT isn't proposing buses using the shoulder as a separate travel lane. The proposed shoulder width on Wasatch is required to meet UDOT design standards for safety and snow storage. The shoulder would allow for would also allow for a buffered bicycle lane and for vehicles to pull out of traffic in an emergency. The design standards used for Wasatch Boulevard are the same standards used for similar roads across the state. So, Josh, one one thing you know, Vince just talked about these shoulders and and improving the shoulders there for bike lanes. I know that's a huge uh, demographic that uses these canyons. Talk about the what's happening with the bike lanes during this. Right. We all know that this segment in, of roadway is a huge road rider location, right? Bikes love it. You see people at the 7-Eleven all day long refilling water bottles. If you look at the Strava accounts, people are going up and down Little Cottonwood. No kidding, all year round. <clears throat> so we are planning on striping in bike lanes in this shoulder. And again, because the queue jumping of the buses is likely to happen in winter when there's low bicycle counts. We don't anticipate that to be a big concern, but we're also looking at including a multi-use trail on the east side of Wasatch, and that'll help, you know, less confident cyclists traverse this fairly busy road, but it's also going to be nice for pedestrians and dog walkers and people pushing strollers just to have another available option to either walk down to the park or walk down, just take a walk outside where Wasatch doesn't currently have sidewalks. Cool. That's, and that's good to know. I mean, those, these trails everywhere else that we have them in the Valley, they're, they're used. People are on them and using them. So that'd be a great addition to, to the Wasatch Boulevard area. Josh, when is all this construction going to start? So that's the million dollar question, right? Um, you know, ski season's wrapping up and I think a lot of us remember many days where either their neighborhood road was blocked or, you know, they spent a couple hours trying to get up to go skiing on a Saturday because it seemed like majority of our storms were on weekends this year. But we can't actually start any construction until the EIS process is complete. 
And we basically, you know, we, we need the record of decision or rod to be signed, which is we're hoping and are currently scheduled for that to happen in the winter of 21, 22. So basically a little bit less than a year out, we hope to have a signed record of decision. We would then need to design whatever the selected alternative is. And currently we only have partial funding identified, which means the selective alternative may need to be constructed in phases as funding becomes available, or you know, next year's legislature may produce funding for the whole thing. So we just don't know that yet. But realistically, if everything goes smoothly, we would get a rod in early 2022, begin the design process. And then as we all know, it, it's a long winter in the canyon. So construction would likely begin after ski season in the spring of 2023. And looking at any of these alternatives outside of just the enhanced bus, so the gondola, the cog rail, or the peak period shoulder lanes, Construction's expected to take two to three summers for any of those alternatives. And who's who's going to make the decision? How does the preferred alternative get selected? Um, who's on the team there? Who makes the decision? As the lead agency for the EIS, UDOT will be selecting a preferred alternative, and that'll be identified in the draft EIS early this summer. But of course, UDOT's also working with the Forest Service regarding how our NEPA decisions might impact the National Forest Service and the lands that they manage. The selection of the preferred alternative will, of course, be made using an objective, data-driven approach and analysis, and this will be informed by the public comments that we receive through the NEPA process. That's some pretty technical stuff, Josh. Thanks for helping us understand it and the timeline and selection process. We know there's a lot of passion surrounding the canyon and, of course, each of these alternatives. Hello, Bree. Can you tell us how the, uh, how the public can be involved um, at this stage of the process? Talk to us a little bit about that. So Josh will talk about the overall project schedule you know, in a little bit, but to, to wrap up, but for the next phase, um, we do expect that the draft EIS will be released um, for both public review and comment early this summer. And there's going to be quite a few opportunities for folks to be involved. And we definitely hope everyone will take advantage of them. So as I mentioned, we've got another public comment period, which will, you know, be a minimum of 40, 45 days. And so we'll also be providing updates to the local governments in the area, too, which, you know, folks are always encouraged to tune into, um, you know, and, and outside of those, we've got kind of a public hearing planned with a little bit of open house panache thrown in there where, you know, the public will be invited to come take a look at all the information that we have for the draft EIS. And they'll also be able to come chat with the members of the project team that you've heard throughout the podcast and you'll also get an opportunity to make a formal comment in front of the crowd if, if that's to your liking. And we'll be posting more info about the, the open house and hearing and as well as what to expect if you want to attend and if you want to submit a comment. Um, those will all be posted on the project website as we get closer to the release of the draft EIS. And that'll just really be when we have a better idea of the timing and the format that that meeting will take since, you know, most folks remember we had a, an online format last time, just when we were at the, the beginning of COVID. So those are some of the things we'll be sorting out. 
you know, and then finally, if public meetings aren't your thing, which is understandable, um, all the information, so the draft DIS document itself, the fact sheets, update videos, things like that that you already are kind of currently seeing on the website are going to be posted on, on the project website once that comment period starts when the draft DIS is released. You mentioned three words that I want to circle back to here, public comment period. Tell us more about that and what that means. Well, that is an excellent question. And for folks that want to do a little more in-depth dive on, you know, the NEPA process and how public involvement gets, um, you know, is, is part of that, we've got a great video on the project website and... I totally recommend everybody watch it, but we're also going to break it down briefly here with you. So let's kind of start with the basics. So you've probably seen, you know, especially for our followers that have been more engaged um, throughout our email or social media updates that when we ask folks to submit comments, you know, we often say submit formal comments during a, a comment period and, and we'll offer a variety of ways such as email website uh, or a verbal comment at a at the especially at the public hearing and so those are our formal comments i guess what's known as formal through the the nepa process and only formal comments through the channels that we listed um will during the draft eis comment period will leave a receive a response in the final eis so formal comments or informal i should say the ones that we receive, which are outside of those comment periods, you know, where we say, I think, for example, last summer, we said, submit your comments like June and Josh, I'm probably Vince, I'm butchering the dates. Don't cringe. But for example, June 10th through July, I'm, I'm going to stop there. <laughs> I don't even remember, but we give that parameter of dates um, because that's what constitutes that official period. And that's why it's super important for folks to make sure that they get their comments during that time frame and through the right mediums. Because the other end of the spectrum is the informal comments. And so we kind of touched on that. They're outside of the comment periods. But those are the ones that we also receive on social media. So, you know, the informal ones... Also, they really help us understand the issues that are important, but they just won't receive a response um, in the final or be included in the final EIS. So that's why we ask that folks really try to use the official channels in the, the date range that we provide. And so that was a mouthful. Going to come up for some air. Um, the best ways to get information about when those formal comment periods are for the EIS or to first off, make sure you're on our email list and also check that we're not in the spam folder. This is more common than you realize for any of our listeners out there that are like, man, I have not been hearing from the EIS team in a while. Check the old spam folder. The email address being littlecottonwoodeis at utah.gov. Um, and so that's kind of our, you know, our main way that we're reaching out to folks, but also... Definitely, and if you're listening to this on Instagram TV, you're already following us on U.Cottonwoods. But, um, you know, as we said, even though social media comments aren't, you know, official ways to, to comment on the draft EIS, 
we will be posting the latest information about the project, the comment period, the public hearing, all those details and more on that social channel. Excellent info. Thanks for the overview on the comment period and how we can stay informed about it. I get the emails. I have been getting them for a long time and they're pretty great. Good info there. What types of info, Bree, is the project team really looking for in the comments? Well, first, I just got to say thanks to everybody who's taken the time to actually go through and submit a comment through the channel, the official channels that I've listed. I am, along with Josh and Vince, one of those people that's read every single comment. And really the passion that people have for the canyon really comes through. So I mean, regardless of the content of the comments, it's just really nice to see people getting engaged on such important, an important topic and taking advantage of this public process. Um, so with that, let's talk about the types of input we're looking for and, and just some things to keep in mind. So with the important stuff, and, and I, I dropped the acronym as well um, for the refresher, as Josh and Carissa have mentioned, we're following the NEPA process, which stands for National Environmental Policy Act. And the public input part of it is just one of the considerations that UDOT's going to take into account as, as Josh touched on. And so I think for us um, as the project team, just for folks to know is that, you know, the, the public input on the draft EIS isn't a popular vote. So, you know, just because you say, go bus, go sheds, go gondola. Um, you know, we are taking all those other factors that Josh listed into consideration. So one comment does not equal one vote. And with that, you know, what are we looking for when you're making a comment, not a vote? Um, in drafting the comments, you know, it's really helpful to try to focus on things like how the proposed alternatives may or may not meet the purpose and need of the project, as that's one of the, the criteria Josh has touched on, or how the analysis or mitigation of the environmental impacts of the alternatives, like, how did we handle that? You know, did we miss something? Um, you know, and some examples of this, you know, that, that we could see and, and actually were evident, for instance, um, when we received those two new alternatives back in November as a result of the previous public comment period, where you know, folks had offered suggestions on a different way an alternative could be implemented or providing really specific examples about how an alternative may impact a resource or community for the, the team to analyze. So comments like this are really helpful to the project and just give us better insight on what to review more, um, you know, a little bit more so than just saying whether or not you're, you're for or against something, because it's just that that extra bit of detail helps us make sure that we're not missing anything in the analysis. But, you know, all that being said, though, we do love the enthusiasm and the input we've been receiving, regardless of the content that each of those comments contains. And Bree, there is a lot of enthusiasm and passion around this EIS. I, I know that. And I you guys have been really involved in the comments and we've just heard some of them. So um, we get it. it. It's a big process. And and I, I appreciate knowing really how people can get involved and, and how they can learn more and really put their voice out there. So thank you, Bree, for that. 
So, Josh, it sounds like since this is our kitchen sink episode that we're kind of getting to the end of the little Cottonwood EIS series. Um, walk us through the remaining project timeline, if you will, and really help us understand the draft EIS that Bree mentioned uh, just a little bit better. So the next phase is the draft EIS, and we expect to release the draft EIS early summer, you know, so we're, we're only a couple months out. We're really just finishing up that detailed analysis of the impacts. And at that same time, when the draft EIS, we intend to identify a preferred alternative, right? So one of these five alternatives that we feel best is the best fit for the project. Um, that will kick off a 45-day public comment period, and we'll also have a public hearing associated with the project in that 45-day period. So again, I encourage everybody to comment. We got 6,500 comments last summer. I, I would love to see more. It's great to hear what everybody's saying and their feelings. Um, and just what things we can improve upon in the process. <clears throat> Moving forward from that, we'll take all those comments we get in, read them, respond to them. And then, like I mentioned before, we hope to have a final EIS and a record de decision in winter 21-22, which in all reality is probably somewhere in that new year of 22. Just one quick reminder that we've thrown a lot of costs around here. We are continuing to refine the engineering associated with those alternatives. And we do expect some of these costs to change um, a little bit plus or minus as that refinement occurs. Again, we're not expecting any major changes at this point. But again, they probably will vary a little up and down as that refinement continues. So with that, I just want to say thank you to Lisa and Matt for having myself, Vince, Carissa, Terry, Bree. Um, I'm not going to say that this wasn't completely terrifying when we started talking about it. And it's turned out to be really fun. So thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to get this information out there. And honestly, you made it fun. So thanks. Well, thanks, Josh. And I, you know, I think you sound confident and like the expert that you are. So we, we appreciate your voice and, and Vince for being on here and, and our newcomers, Carissa and Bree. Thank you for, uh, for agreeing to this and, and letting us kind of pick your brains a little bit on this, on this podcast. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. Lisa, what's up next? Well, that's a pretty full kitchen sink, you guys, but a very good way to kind of round out that EIS process. But stay tuned for episode six. We're going to be talking with the UDOT Avalanche crew, kind of a day in the life and how they keep roads safe through avalanche mitigation operations and how they coordinate with Canyon Partners. It's going to be a good one. Lisa, thank you for being here with me, making me sound smarter than I am. And, and the four of you, just thank you for being part of this. And I do need to give one shout out before we uh, before we end this podcast, because Grant Potter, who was our producer, uh, put all of this together for us, is really uh, a magician when it comes to making us sound better than we actually sound in real life. So kudos to Grant Potter, who is our digital information specialist at, the, at, at UDOT. Uh, he's silently in the background making sure that uh, 
that we sound good and our, our mics are working and, and all of that good stuff. So thank you. Thank you, Grant. Uh, thanks to all four of you for being on. Lisa, you're amazing. And uh, we'll see everybody on episode six. And who's, who's going to make the decision? How does the preferred alternative get selected? Um, who's on the team there? Who makes the decision? Well, it's you, Matt. Sweet. Nice. Now I've got a kidding. pen. Um, I, <laughs> I, just, I just bought a new pen so I can sign the rod. <laughs> no, um, you cannot choose. I'm sorry. <laughs>